baby, 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 how was I supposed to know that something wasn't right here? Oh, baby, baby, how you go? And now you're right outside. Show me how you wanna do be. Tell me, baby, tell me, baby, no, because my loneliness is killing me and I. I must confess, I still believe, still believe. When I'm not with you, I lose my mind. Give me a sign. Hit me, baby, one more time. I think we already sung that song here, though. I think so, too. <laughs> now that we're singing it. But it's, it's a classic. Did. It's a classic. So. It's, mm-hmm. We should just start singing like the same song and pretend that we don't know. That we're like descending to madness and losing our memory. Yes, exactly. Probably. Welcome to Suspiria, people. Hi, guys. That is that was Stephanie singing and me, Carol, singing too. Yeah. In case you're wondering what was going on. I mean, I think by now you already know our amazing singing <laughs> skills and you're already used to our singing voices. So there's that. Mm-hmm. We're signing up with a record label. Yeah. It's called, yeah, believe it or it's not. called Bad Singers Entertainment. It is. Guys, welcome, welcome. Yes. <laughs> welcome, oh welcome. Yeah. Um, so today, first of all, I want to preface this by saying that I'm very upset. Oh no. I'm very upset because Why? Today's I I researched the case that we're talking about today. And uh-huh. I planned on researching a completely different case. But you already know that, like, most of the cases that we do, because we are doing Latin American true crime, they have, like, no sources, right? Right. And then the case that I wanted to research had even less sources than we typically find. So I had to research my backup case. So... Yeah, this is the second option, guys. Which is also I think I'm a, a, fam- a case that is more famous than the other one, so... Yeah. I guess this isn't your loss, yeah. listeners. Like, this was uh in our list for a while, but it's not a case that we plan on doing right now. But you know what? Everything happens for a reason. Um, you gotta do it sometime. Mm-hmm. And today's, it's one of those. <laughs> yeah. In today's episode, we will dive into Brazilian history once more. Because, you know, we came back to Brazil last week. And now we're gonna do it again. And if you're mad, you're mad. Yeah. I don't care. This time, we will be talking about a serial killer. And I feel like we haven't really had one from Brazil in a while. I feel like the cases, the Brazilian yeah. cases that we covered, like, more recently were all, like, murders of, like, one person, but not actually a serial killer. Um, the... I think the last serial killer might have been the Red Light Bandit, like, a while, while, yeah, while back. Yeah, the last Brazilian one, I think it was. Yeah. Or maybe we we're did wrong. tons of other serial killers. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we're wrong. Places. We don't remember, <laughs> but yeah, we're probably wrong. We don't know this podcast <laughs> at all. We're almost always wrong. No, I'm just kidding. We're right too. Um, the person we're covering today is José Augusto do Amaral, aka Preto Amaral, that literally translates to Black Amaral, uh, who is considered by many to be the first serial killer in Brazilian history. So little bit of history for y'all but is he awful as our infamous hh homes here in america we will see so the sources for today's episodes are vix uh the book archivos 
Arquivo Serial Killers Made in Brazil, which was written by Ilana Cazoy. She's like a very famous like crime author in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, super Isn't in- it funny that the, the name is Made in Brazil? I know. Yeah, because it's all about um, Brazilian serial killers. Yeah. I mean, I hate when people name Brazilian stuff in English. Like, that happens with even like podcasts. They go, like, yes, I'm creating a podcast. Let's put the name in English for this podcast in yeah. Portuguese. Get a grip. <laughs> Super Interessante Magazine, Carta Capital, Vice, Forum Magazine, uh, the Public Defense Office of Sao Paulo, Carroll State, mm-hmm. and obviously Wikipedia, because, you know, there's always. José Augusto Amaral was born on August 15th, 1871, in Conquista, Minas Gerais. Steph State, another serial killer. I was the one that had the most criminals, and now we're catching up, Steph. We are, we are. His parents were African slaves from Congo and Mozambique who belonged to the Viscount of Ouro Preto. We have spoken about Ouro Preto a few times here before, such as in the case of Aline Silvia Soares, who was murdered there, our, namely our worst episode, go listen to it. <laughs> uh, but basically, all you need to know about Ouro Preto is that it used to be a very, very important place. So this dude was no joke. Uh, with... The passing of the Golden Law, though, slavery was abolished on Braz- in Brazil on May 13, 1988. So, at 17, José was a free man. Ouro Preto is a really beautiful city. You guys should go to if you go ever go to Minas. It's, it's amazing. He volunteered to become part of the military in Sao Paulo, but uh, deserted afterwards. He, re- he would repeatedly join the military forces and desert. <laughs> He, he's a fan of a pattern mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh as far as we know he did this in the police brigade of rio grande do sul heavy artillery group of Bajé, infantry regiment of porto alegre and the 13th am i saying right dude i suck at numbers cavalry regiment of of rio de janeiro he also enlisted in the navy but gave up like fucking quick So, we can see that he has some commitment issues, maybe. (laughs) José would also uh, go to build up a rap sheet, being arrested for vagrancy several times between 1920 and 1922, as well as being arrested for theft in 1922 in Sao Paulo. Vagrancy is the funniest crime ever, man. Yes, yes. It's like, yeah, I don't like what you're doing. Let's arrest you. Exactly. And although we don't know much about his life between birth and uh, the murders, uh, we can only imagine that it wasn't, like, a very easy one. Like many of the imperialist countries around the world, the Brazilian state didn't really offer much support for the slaves that it freed. They pretty much tossed people out on the street and said, good luck. Uh, And also, like, some of you might be asking why he, um, why he enlisted in the military so much it's because it was one of the very few places where a black person could get a job back then like because they had like no skills uh most of them were illiterate like they didn't know anything so they uh, enlisted in the army and i would um if you have the patience i think some of his videos are subtitled in english but there's this guy that carol introduced me to his name is eduardo bueno he yes. did like a lot of uh very interesting videos on 
what happened to Brazil after slavery was abolished, and it helps mm-hmm. you, like, understand the sentiment of the society back then. Mm-hmm. His readers are fucking great. If you know Portuguese, it covers, like, a lot... Because Brazil's history echoes a lot of Latin America, and he explains a lot of stuff. Is Eduardo Bueno, like, like Spanish Bueno. Bueno. Mm-hmm. And, oh my god, best fucking channel on YouTube. Amazing. Yeah. So, back then, in the early 1900s, it was very, very common for black people to be arrested for vagrancy, since many of them were unable to find steady jobs, so they tried to get by doing little jobs here and there. Because of that, José would be seen as a person with a spotty record due to something back then called contravention. Uh, I couldn't find, like, a definition of what that was, but it was, like, a standard back then, especially for black Mm. people. Um, mm-hmm. another fact basically white people can hang out on the curb sit out yeah you know do whatever they want but you know on the colorism scale mm-hmm. that yeah. is pretty pretty far on the edge so yeah one more fact that uh, about Jose that we and I'm like trying so hard not to call him Jose this is fucking ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> muscles in our mouth are just yeah treason uh, another thing that we know about him is that at age 14 he had gotten a tattoo on his left arm with his mother's name. Her name was Francisca Claudia. It's a nice name. Yeah. He was illiterate, but he was very, very, very smart. He could play instruments by ear, and he had an excellent memory. He had uh, experience working as a blacksmith and also a cook, and he had lived in Minas Gerais, Espírito Santo, Bahia, Ceará, Amazonas, Pará, Rio Grande do Sul. Also, he lived abroad in Bolivia, Argentina, mm-hmm. uh, Uruguay, and finally settled down in Sao Paulo. It's a lot of traveling for the 1800s, man. Mm-hmm. He wasn't no planes. That's awesome. Like, can you imagine? As you can very well imagine, finding a record of José's victims is quite a challenge one because finding brazilian criminal records is hard period but doing this for crimes that happened 100 years ago is even worse as far as our sources could tell us his first victim was a nine-year-old shine boy named rocco source some sources credit him as being named hockey Basil. he was a minor so his real name wouldn't have been published even at the time he worked a- he worked around the Concordia Square in the Braz region of São Paulo. On February 13th, 1926, he got ready to leave the the place since he, was, since he wasn't getting much businesses because of drizzle falling. In case you don't know, São Paulo is constant drizzle. It's like London. And um, he was about to pack up his stuff with when a tall black man approached him asking if he could help him carry a box full of clothes. For that, the man would pay him 4,000 hays, which is probably like four cents. <laughs> yeah, nowadays it's probably nothing, yeah, but back then it was yeah, like some money. <laughs> uh-huh, don't let the thousand trick you, no. Rocco was very excited uh, at, the pro- at the prospect of making some extra cash, so probably he accepted the offer and followed the man from the Celso Garcia Avenue to the bridge over the Tamanduatei River. Say that four times fast. Tamunuti, tamunuti, tamunuti. <laughs> near the that is near the Cantareira station train station. He entered the João Teodoro Street, and the boy could tell that something wasn't quite right. The street was poorly lit, 
And before he could bounce out of there, the men jumped on him, trying to strangle him with his own hands. Rocco fought as hard as he could against him, kicking and screaming, but he soon lost consciousness. Giuseppe then ripped out the boy's clothes and got ready to rape him. However, he was spooked by a car that parked on the area and ran away. And here's where the source material makes it harder for us to determine what really happened. So while Vice states that Rocco was indeed rape, raped, Ilana Kazoi's book says the contrary. Since we didn't have that many more sources, we're going to go uh, with the narrative that she gave because she is a great specialist and Vice is not too reliable for <laughs> tons of facts as we know. Yeah, and, like, a lot of sources, including Wikipedia, say that, like, this was his last crime, not the first one. But if you look at the timeline... Get a grip, people! Yeah, if you look at the timeline, like, date-wise, Ilana's timeline sounds more plausible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Rocco woke up uh, sometime after the attack. He was obviously hurt. He was moaning a lot because he was in pain. Uh, and he was lying in a puddle of mud and confused as to what the fuck just happened. He finally managed to get up and walk towards the street where two women saw him and they flagged down a police officer. A cab driver named Basilio Pachi was stopped by the group and the officer asked him to drive the boy home. His family was extremely disturbed by the story the boy told them, but they still did not press charges initially. We don't really know mm. if they were scared or, like, embarrassed by what happened. Uh, but the thing is, they didn't charge uh, press charges at that time. Later that night, José would return to the scene with the intention of raping the boy he thought was dead. Only to find out that there was no body there. Dude. Yeah. Rocco got lucky, but this wouldn't happen to the next victim. On December 5th, 1926, Giuseppe came across a man named Antonio Sanchez, who was 27 years old, around the Tiradentes Avenue. Antonio looked much, much younger than what he actually was. He was skinny, sickly, and some described him as effeminate. Which probably just means that he was, like, he had hair an inch longer than everyone else. Yeah, exactly. Probably exactly. just some bullshit like that. <laughs> he had left his hometown of Baja Bonita, which is like the countryside or something to find a job oh, i've been to baja bonitas where the they have like a, a dam thing that's cool a dam not a dam but like a, a dam like a you know what i mean like the water dam mm -hmm. baja bonita is pretty cool and he had left there to find a job uh in the capital sao paulo where he lived in the lapa neighborhood on that day, he was sitting on a bench trying to figure out where his next meal would come from since he mm -hmm. had been unsuccessful in earning any money. Sad. Yeah. He was lost in his own thoughts when Jose sat next to him and struck up a conversation. He told Antonio, Ma'am? Excuse me, ma'am. Very strong opinions today. So, he he told Antonio that his name was Amaral, and Antonio quickly asked him for a cigarette while well, they talked about his day. He told Jose that he didn't even know how he would feed himself and that he was starving. That sounded like music to Jose's ears. He invited Antonio to have lunch on him on the Botequim da Cunha, which was at the corner of the Teodoro Sampaio Street. 
Antonio couldn't believe his luck and he quickly accepted the generous offer and went along with the man. Now, before you think that Jose quickly jumped him, he actually did make good on his promise. He watched Antonio quickly shove all the food inside his mouth as if he had just left the desert. Antonio thought he had lucked out even more when Jose asked him if he would be willing to help him out with a job that he had to get done at in the Campo de Marche airport. He followed him along, believing that they were going to be friends, and I finally found my person here. Upon arriving there, things took a turn for the worst. They were in an isolated part of the airport, behind uh, several bamboo trees. Caught by surprise, Antonio tried to fight back, but José was very much stronger than him and would strangle the young man. This time, though, José made sure to check that he was actually dead by putting his ear uh, to the man's chest. After verifying that he was indeed dead, he raped the corpse, leaving it to be found by whoever passed by the crime scene later. Yeah. I just think it's inter interesting that there's like a 10-month break between the failed attempt and the yeah. real attempt. Makes me think if there was like many of the crimes that probably maybe weren't caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you something? Did you find, like, on your research, the ethnicity of the victims? I did not, but I believe, just judging by what will happen after he was arrested, that they were white. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think yeah, it was... Okay. I don't think it was a case of the less dead. Uh, he definitely... I think I even said this, like, later on, but he definitely preyed on um, younger boys who, you know, were just looking for jobs or, like, a way to find their next meal because like this is the 20s <laughs> this is like the mm -hmm. the peak of <laughs> industrialism in brazil and it was very common for like little kids to work so it's mm -hmm. easy to trick them mm -hmm. so on christmas eve that same year he would strike again now the victim would be 12 year old jose felipe de carvalho so some places um credit him with being 10 years old so he's either 10 or like 12 José Felipe lived, lived in the Alto do Pari neighborhood, and he was used to play on the streets. We have to remember that this is the 20s, like in Latin America, so being out on the street alone <laughs> as a child is not unusual at all. The boy was also very, very familiar with all the streets he roamed around. During the afternoon on that day, he was hunting birds with his little slingshot, and later he asked his mom if he could go to the Christmas Mass at the Santo Antonio Church. You can only imagine how happy she was that she he was searching for God on his own. So she was like, yeah, yeah, go to the mass. Like, you go, you go. You're amazing because, you know, mm -hmm. Latin America, everybody is a Catholic <laughs> or pretends to be Christian. So <laughs> José Felipe walked in the rain and then he spotted a man that was selling balloons near the Caninde neighborhood. He was fascinated by the sight of the balloons and he finally, like, gathered up the courage to walk up to the man and ask him if he could have a balloon, even though he didn't have money. Mm. Little did he know that said man was Amaral. He was given a balloon and quickly struck up a conversation with the older name. Amaral asked the boy where he lived, what he was doing there all by himself, and José Felipe just kept on talking because, you know, kids, th this is, like, exactly how kids behave. Yeah. 
his balloon like randomly popped and he was like very upset like near the verge of tears and he was like oh can i please have another one and Amara was like, yeah, you can have another one. And then the man noticed that José Felipe had a slingshot. And he was like, oh, there are some woods nearby that have, like, a lot of birds. I can show you where it is. And, mm. and another motorcycle. He was like, I can show you where it is. Um, and then the boy followed him to where the alleged birds were. José Felipe was taken to the very same area near the Campo de Marte airport where Antonio was victimized. Like Antonio, he was caught off guard and murdered. Then his body was raped. His mother thought it was very strange when hours passed and he didn't return from the mass. He wasn't the type of boy who would have done something like this. So, desperate for answers, she started roaming the town, going from church to church in search of her only child. Church to church in church. <laughs> when nothing came out of that, she fil- she filed a missing persons report at the Bras police station. His body wouldn't be quickly found. In fact, it would only be identified when his mother read on the new paper that police had found uh, corpses without identification. She recognized the clothes that he was wearing because his body had already started decomposing. On New Year's Day, 1927, 15-year-old Antonio Lemis had a day off from the textile factory that he worked at. He left the house asking his mom to save him a plate from, from lunch as he would come back later after doing a job for a woman who lived in the Peña neighborhood. Not to be mistaken for the Peña neighborhood in Rio de Janeiro where the, we had an episode about Feira da Peña. This is a yeah. different place. Yeah. Okay, not connected. He would encounter a group of children near the Mercado Central. He would encounter he would encounter a group of children near the Mercado Central, Mercadão, and start playing with them. Again, let's remember that this is the twenties, so a fifteen-year-old boy still enjoyed playing with the other kids. You know, because puberty hits at different times for different people. He was spotted by Amaral, who was gambling nearby. The men asked if Antonio wanted to have lunch with him and in at the restaurant Meiodia, and the boy said yes. So, the two of them had lunch, and there's another motorcycle. <laughs> it's the cat and the motorcycle. I'm gonna write a book that says the cat and the motorcycle, and it's just mm-hmm. the cat riding his motorcycle around town. Anyway, so the two of them had lunch, and they even drank some wine. Amaral offered uh, Antonio 2,000 Hays to come along and help him do a job in the Peña neighborhood. Since Antonio was already very familiar with the area and he had to go there anyway for another job, he accepted the offer. They hopped on a tram and got off on its last stop and continued on foot along the San Miguel Road. They would interrupt their walk every now and then so that Amaral could walk into a bar and have a drink. You know, everything is very friendly until up until mm-hmm. then. Uh, when they reached when they reached the Kilometer 39, Amaral told Antonio that they could take a shortcut and when they were far enough away from, from anyone that would have been able to hear them, he jumped the boy. He put his left arm around Antonio's neck and choked him with his right hand until he lost consciousness. For safe measure, Amaral strangled Antonio with a white belt, following that by ripping his clothes off and raping him. 
He ran away shortly afterwards, and everything would have gone as planned had Antonio's body not been found the very next day. Police began their investigation on Antonio's disappearance around the Mercado, where he was last seen playing with the children. They were tipped off by a witness who had seen the victim speaking with a black man. The investigators then sifted through their files, trying to find every man with a history of sodomy on their records, since the autopsy gave them evidence that this was what had happened with Antonio. Soon, newspapers were talking about the crime, putting everyone on edge, and also asking for witnesses to come forward with any information. Now, I'm going to pause. The first witness to show up was a man named Hockey Siqueira. He told investigators that upon reading the news, he remembered that he had seen a black man on the first asking a boy if he wanted to have lunch. The two of them had lunch at the same restaurant where Hockey was having lunch, and he saw the man hand the boy some money. He also said that though he didn't know the man's identity, he had he had heard that this man was known as a vagrant who got by with the money that he earned from gambling around the area. We don't really know exactly how the police found Amaral, but he was found pretty damn quickly. He was arrested and charged with the murder of Antonio Lemis. Yeah, and like, this is where the discrepancy of the sources come. Because some people say that it was because of the witness, and other sources mention the boy, Rocco, who was almost raped. Mention him as being the person who tattled on Amaral. So, so as, you can, as you can very well imagine, police were not too kind to Amaral, and it's rumored that he was tortured during the interrogations and quickly confessed to the previous crimes. He also told police that he only sodomized the victims once he was sure that they were indeed dead, as if that made it mm-hmm. a lot less worse. Like, come on. So newspapers would go on to plaster Amaral's face on their investigative start on their investigative no on their invest investigative sources. The newspaper uh, Gazeta even described him as a savage man, vagrant who had no profession or the will to find a job. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know a lot of people like that, though, but they're not serial killers. <laughs> like, come on. I was like that until very recently. <laughs> who lie. wants to have a job anyways? <laughs> According to the police records and newspapers some of the time, he confessed to all of it very naturally without showing much remorse. As you would expect, right? Yeah. So a search party was formed to come through the airport vicinity and find the other bodies. Amaral guided police through the bamboo trees where two bodies were found, one of them pretty much completely decomposed by then. Police were ready to throw the book at Amaral, but they would soon find out about Rocco after his father, Carmini, reached out to them and told them what happened. Rocco was able to identify Amaral as the man who had strangled him, solidifying the case even more. Two additional survivors would show up at the police station to testify against Amaral. The first, of, the first of them was 16-year-old Antonio Manuel Neves Filho. He was approached at the Voluntarios da Patria Street and had followed Amaral to Ponte Grande. Antonio managed to run away when he was already in the middle of the woods. <sighs> the second survivor was 13-year-old Manuel Antonio Neves, who was asked by a black man to follow him to the Cantareira station, where he would help him take a package to the airport. He would be paid 1,000 reais for the job. I love how, like, the first offer is, like, higher and it just, like, starts going lower. 
Did you notice that? Yeah. So Manuel got the heebie-jeebies after some time, and he was like, nope, and he ran away. Both boys identified Amaral as the perpetrator. Amaral stated that he did not recognize the two boys who survived his attacks. He told police that he had been plagued by the ghost of the victims he had killed. By confessing, he expected that they would leave him in peace. He was sent to jail to await the trial, and during that time, he was subjected to physical and psychiatric exams. Doctors at the time deemed him to be a sadist, necrophiliac, who had a special predilection to children. He um, had the ability to commit his crimes without getting caught, but and his victims probably wouldn't have been found had he not confessed. Physical exams also showed that his penis was of a monumental size and he told doctors that escorts refused to see him more than once what an odd odd thing to have like out in the media in the 1920s yeah i tell you what i did not expect to like be talking about serial killer penises on this podcast so soon oh my god yeah he allegedly even followed some of his friends advice and used the banana tree as a way to track the growth of his pee-pee by striking it with a knife. When he realized the thing was not going to stop growing, he tried to axe it, but it didn't work. Why is this relevant? Well, back then it was very common to associate the size of a penis with the size of a crime. This tells you everything you need to know about 1920s Brazilian society. (laughs) This is the wildest paragraph of the history of this podcast oh my god yep and like every single source talks about the size of this guy's dick all right we just got a serial killer new serial killer here okay johns out of curiosity what's the size of the penis mm-hmm. like how does that go yep you know what i mean yep like how does that happen jesus christ Amaral also alleged that he hallucinated after committing his first crime. He didn't really show much much remorse, and he didn't own up to many of the murders in any of the places uh, he lived before São Paulo. He also allegedly didn't really see anything wrong with his behavior. He was impulsive and didn't reflect on his own actions. He was analyzed uh, by famous psychiatrist Antonio Carlos Pacheco e Silva, who stated the following about him. So this is a direct quote from the psychiatrist. This is, in our opinion, a a criminal sadist and necrophiliac whose perversion boils down to sodomy, in which a child is the special and exclusive object of the pathological disposition. He has the ability of committing crimes without being caught. Amaral fits the group of sexual perverts, perverts, which is kept which is characterized by those who are in a permanent state of sexual hyperesthesia, who under the influence of this excitement, which is continuous and deadly, are brought to act upon it, more or less automatically, without having the ability to reflect and judge the impulsive act. The crimes of sadistic necrophiles are carried out with relative calm, with prudence, by ambushing people, and the criminal acts as if they were doing something normal. It is also important to say that after Amaral's arrest, the newspapers still reported similar murders around the area. The population was extremely frustrated by that, and they also wanted to either lynch or execute him. Which, you know, lynching black people, you know, you know exactly who the lynching fans are. Um, he would be nicknamed a shit ton of things such as 
the black monster, child boogeyman, the beast, spiky, and toucan, because he had like a large nose. His health slowly started to decline while he was in jail awaiting his trial. He lost a lot of weight and he had pretty much daily fevers as well as rheumatic pains. He was taken to the nurse's station in the Cadeia Pública where he would die of a pneumatic tuberculosis on July 2nd, 1927 without ever facing trial. Police speculated that he was involved in the disappearance of other five children but they couldn't prove it. These children were 16-year-old Antonio Ramario Filho, who went missing on December 12, 1926. 15-year-old Luis Bicudo, who was a plumber who went missing uh, on Christmas Day, 1926. 14-year-old Sarkis Euclade, who disappeared on December 27, 1926. Also... 17-year-old Vicente Scaglielli, who disappeared on the 27th, and 15-year-old telegrapher Luis Hira, who who disappeared on December 31, 1926. In September of 2012, a symbolic trial was held for Amaral. The event was organized by the Public Defense Office of São Paulo and had about 560 spectators. They had actors who represented the witnesses who testified against Amaral, such as the mother of one of the victims. Author Ilana Cazoy, that we already mentioned many times, testified against Amaral based on the files from the crime she had used as a source in her book, saying that he had an MO and a specific type of victim that he would kill then rape. To counter that, defense stated that only one of the victims was proven to help to have been raped and other ones were too badly decomposed to state that for certain. Yeah, in her book, she also acknowledges the role that racism played in not only this, but many other cases at the time. There were even people back then who proposed different penal codes for people of different races. How fucked up is that in geographical re- regions? Who, like forensic psychiatrist Raimundo Nina Rodriguez, which if you if you um, remember our, our Lampion episode, Nina Rodriguez was the, the museum named after him where they exposed all the fucking heads. So yeah, this guy, he went as far as defining the black man as someone who is confrontational, violent in his sexual impulses, prone to drunkenness. <laughs> like, how is that? Like, what? How do you know that? is true about every black person what so Ilana also says that the psychiatrist who examined Amaral was heavily influenced by his peers who supported eugenics and the idea that some races are more prone to commit crimes still she says there's evidence in his history Amaral's history to theorize that he was indeed a serial killer she points out the following facts in support of that theory one, he had a background of mental illness, judging by a three-month stay at a mental asylum in Porto Alegre after a period of mental absence. This was according to psychiatrist Pacheco Silva. Amaral was also a loner, and he was a drifter who lived in hostels, public squares, or boarding houses. He deserted the military institutions several times, showing that he had a problem with discipline. The size of his penis was abnormal, so he had problems when it came to sexual relations. Like, he wouldn't have, like, regular sexual relations with, like, a regular person. Mm -hmm. He was a a nomadic vagrant who lived all over the place. He had a rap sheet. He took police to exactly where they could find the bodies of two of the victims. 
He was identified by survivors. Two of the murders happened at the same location and they all shared the same MO. And also, the murders stopped after his arrest. At the mock trial, there was also a statement from historian Paulo Fernando de Souza Campos, who investigated how the accusations, how the accusation used techniques that were uh, based on racist assumptions and eugenics. He pointed out that Amaral was initially arrested as a suspect, but so were other black men, and the media played a role making the case bigger than it really was. According to him, the bodies were found in trails commonly used by black poor people, which um, is why he could have taken the police there after being tortured, etc., etc. He said people. He said that quote. People could see a body in there for days and not say anything because they didn't want to be blamed for it. The allegations of the possible torture of Amaral were brought up um, and were challenged by the accusation who said that he was the only black man among many incarcerated who were who was tortured and incriminated. The trial ended with a vote from spectators and 257 of them voted for the acquittal versus 57 who thought he was guilty. What an interesting turn of events, man. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people mentioned, like, exactly that. The way that the society treated the black man back then. Obviously, like, this little mock trial doesn't mean that he is seen as innocent in the eyes of society. Because, as we said, he is uh, listed as the first... um, the first uh, Brazilian serial killer but it does you know it shows you how society evolved and learned how to analyze evidence uh, differently obviously we didn't give you every single piece of evidence that was uh, exhibited in the mock trial because we <laughs> don't have access to it but I would like to think that for there to be this big of a difference between the number of people who voted for acquittal and the number of people who thought he was guilty, the evidence was pretty compelling. So, yeah, that's so interesting, man. I knew about this case, but I didn't know about this ending surprise ending. Yeah, yeah, wow, it's pretty cool. Yeah, people, so that was it. That was Preto Amaral. Um, I'm pretty sure we are one of the first people to cover this in, um, U.S. podcasts. English, at least, yeah. Uh, so I hope that you find it interesting. Um, I hope that it was, you know, somewhat of a learning experience or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and this, as I said, like, this wasn't the case that we planned on putting out today. But you know what? (laughs) Shit happens. Um, yeah. Do you have anything cool to say, Carol, about your life? Uh, interesting things. I mean, I order like a bunch of things for my cat on Chewy and finally got here. And I ordered like a cool cat fountain and like a little bag that she can hide in, some scratching posts. She's pretty happy. So I'm pretty happy. That's the kind of person I am right now. Oh, happy mom happening. and happy child. Oh, yes. It's my fur baby. Dude, Do I you hate dress her? like that. <laughs> Do you dress her up in special little outfits? No, I'll buy a little princess fairy dress and a little crown that she can scratch my whole house. Oh, it's so beautiful. (laughs) I love love seeing the love between a mother and their child. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I was trying to sound oh poetic, God, guys. but it didn't work out. No, that's very poetic. That's beautiful. Yeah. I've never been described as a mother. I mean, I did miss when she came out of my vagina. So. Yeah. And imagine, she's a mom. Imagine so pushing th- that a cat out of your vagina, though. With the oh, my God. Claws. I can't even, like, pick her up. She won't let me pick her up. Can you imagine? <laughs> the claws. No, thank you. Yeah. So, shout outs for today. We have Lidiane, Ed, Tassimara, Iris, Stephanie, Casey, Fabiola, Tiago, Giovanna, Viviane, Priscilla, Mariana, Natalie, and Vandrei. Welcome. Welcome to our podcast. We hope that you welcome, are enjoying welcome. our show. Um, yeah. I had something to say. Also, oh. Um, if you're, mm. fell, if you fell here, like into this episode <laughs> randomly, uh, you know, listen to our other episodes. You can really tell how much we've evolved as podcasters, uh, from yep. the beginning until now. Like we started this whole thing, um, just thinking of doing Latin American true crime. Cause it's something that we didn't really see in podcasts, uh, before we started, um, and we didn't know what we were doing. So it, it's been a learning experience, um, but we've enjoyed it very, very much. Um, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, please, because it helps. Uh, you can always feel free to message us with any questions about the cases, any case suggestions. We're always open to hear your feedback, even if you want to call us assholes, uh, which you wouldn't be lying because we are a little bit uh a little bit assholes sometimes um yeah and that's it guys yeah hope you guys like it i hope you guys keep on having a good end of the world yeah later yeah, we'll see you next week bye bye thank you for listening to another episode of suspiria a true crime podcast if you are a creep and enjoy listening to all of that horrible information Please check out our previous episodes and write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram as Suspiria Podcast. Facebook is also Suspiria Podcast. If you want to follow Carol, you can follow her at Suspiria Carol. And you can follow me at eu.steph. Note, none of us post anything interesting. We do, actually. If you have any case suggestions, feel free to drop them over at SusperiaPodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to be part of this podcast, you can also email us. We promise we won't bite. Ciao!